whenever I fly somewhere, and it hasn't been uh, very often lately, one of the sweet announcements I look forward to in the plane is when the stewardess or the pilot come on and say something like, folks, we have begun our descent to our destination. It's one of the sweet announcements I, uh, I enjoy listening to. Uh, it means that we are very close to arriving at the place where we're supposed to fly. But imagine a slightly similar and yet different announcement uh, at a different moment in the journey. Imagine the plane took off and it's still in the ascending mode, ascending to the 30,000 feet. Uh, seeking, seeking to reach that altitude where the pilot would tell you, uh, now you can turn on your phones or you can turn on your laptops and enjoy the ride. Imagine you're still climbing up and the pilot comes on and says, folks, we've uh, discovered significant malfunction in the engine. We need to descend back to the base and change the planes. That is not a fun news to hear. Uh, you're glad that they discovered it before crashing, uh, but it's not fun to like take off and realize, oh, we gotta, we gotta turn back down and, and get off and change planes. And our family recently, when we went and visited my, my family in Ohio, uh, we ended up being boarded on the plane. The plane did not yet taxi off, did not yet take off, but but before doing that, after we were all settled in, the luggage was packed, um, uh, the pilot comes on and says, folks, the engine won't start. Uh, we need to get a new plane. So going through all that trouble of getting off on a plane and getting on a new one, it's not fun when you are, when you are ready to go on a trip, when the trip has already started and, and you get the announcement that, uh, that we got to descend back, we gotta, we got to change the plane. Friends, the chapter we are about to read in, uh, in the scripture this morning feels like the scenario of the plane taking off, still ascending, and then uh, the pilot comes on, the pilot of the universe. God comes on and says, folks, this plane is about to descend. This plane is not going to be the plane on which my kingship over my people will continue. This plane is troublesome. This is a story of King Saul as we are looking at how he began reigning and shortly after he took on office we realize and we're told that some significant trouble developed. This decline is a sad turn in the history of Israel but looking closely at it we can learn some important lessons about God's ways with His people. So the message this morning is about the beginning of the decline. Would you open God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 13? 1 Samuel chapter 13. As we're working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, let's hear God's Word for our hearts. This is not a happy decline. This is not a right-timed decline. This is untimely decline, but it is nonetheless a decline, the beginning of it. Here's God's word. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in the Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops 
like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash, to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines has mu have mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord had commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the Lord, the, the, you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about six hundred men. And Saul and Jonathan his son. And the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. The raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. And now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charges were two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any one of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts to hear well. Let's pray. Father, we are privileged to hear your word. Father, would you speak to our hearts in a way that our hearts would hear from you, in a way that our hearts would embrace your truth and trust in you. We pray all this, Father, for the glory of Christ and through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells among us even now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Interesting turn of events here in the history of Israel as it's being unfolded for us. You remember Saul's first king, Israel's first king, had one victory under his belt. The one that we read about earlier in chapter 11 a few weeks ago. After that victory, all Israel embraced Saul as their king. And those events were related in chapter 12. But now a new military threat uh, arose from the Philistines here in chapter 13. 
and he causes a national crisis. And this national crisis exposes a major spiritual crisis for Israel's first king. And the spiritual crisis that Saul experiences here in this new national crisis, the spiritual crisis in Saul's own heart proves to be the beginning of Saul's decline as a king. If we look at how this chapter begins and ends, it paints for us the bleak, the dire situation of Israel as the Philistines began mounting up a new threat against God's people. An easy way to, to read and understand this chapter is to notice how it's divided in, in three parts. The first part and the third part focus on how difficult Israel's situation has been before the Philistines. How the Philistines were attacking Israel again and oppressing them. Between these two parts of the chapter, there's a middle section. That middle section in, is in verses 8 through 15. And it presents a, another crisis. Not the external crisis, but an inward crisis, a spiritual crisis. The new, the new national crisis exposed the king's spiritual crisis. And how Saul relates to the Lord in the midst of the national crisis is more significant than the national crisis itself. And that, friends, is true for any of us today as well. How we relate to the Lord in the midst of the crisis, whether they are personal, familial, or national, how we relate to the Lord in the midst of the crisis is more significant than the crisis itself. Let's see how this proves to be significant for Saul. And I pray that we too can learn from the beginning of Saul's decline. Uh, we'll look at three parts this morning, three points. A severe national crisis, a deeper spiritual crisis, and then the consequences. A severe national crisis, a deeper spiritual crisis, and then the consequences. Let's look at how this chapter unfolds. At the beginning of the chapter, we're told that Jonathan's attack stirred up the Philistines to come and, and attack Israel in a fresh way. And the narrator gives us a picture of the size of the Philistine army. Now, as we, as we look at the setting of the situation, some translations, depending on which version of the Bible you have, uh, give different numbers when describing Saul's age or the size of the Philistine army. That's because different manuscripts have different information on these details. Uh, there are different theories on these differences, but none of them change the overall point of this setting. The text makes clear that they were foot soldiers that were like the sand of the sea. This is a way of saying there are too many to count. If you remember this imagery of like the sand of the sea was a picture that God showed and used when gave the blessing to Abraham, telling Abraham that his offspring will be like the sand of the sea. Here, we find ourselves in a situation where the enemies of Israel are like the sand of the sea. Too many to count. The number of their army aims to inspire intimidation, especially when we read that Saul's national army had only 3,000 men enlisted. Clearly, Israel was facing an enemy too large for them to face. Humanly speaking, the odds of them winning were slim to none. It's not a good place to be in, no matter what the details are. Have you ever been in that kind of situation when facing a crisis or a challenge that just feels way too difficult for you to overcome? Humanly speaking, the odds of you getting out of that mess or out of that situation 
seem increasingly hopeless. This is a setting that we find Israel in here in chapter 13. The Philistines were so intimidating that their large number caused many in Israel to hide and uh, to go up to the mountains, hide in caves, run away. In some cases, some of them even surrendered themselves to the enemy and tried to make peace treaty with the Philistines and, and live among them. Uh, Israel was facing not only the threat of the Philistines, but now the despair and the hopelessness that set in among the nation, among the people. Even the people enlisted in the army who are supposed to be there to guard and protect the, the nation, the soldiers in Saul's army, we're told were controlled by fear. Look at verse 7. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him, trembling. They weren't trembling because it was cold outside. They were trembling because they realized how hopeless their situation is. Uh, this means that it was not merely the Philistines that began dominating the land, but fear and despair began lodging in the hearts of the nation. If this was not enough, the author tells us more information about Israel's pitiful and helpless state before the Philistines. Look at verses 15 to 23 as they show Israel's helplessness. Verse 15, we read that Saul's army got even smaller. If at the beginning of the chapter, Saul had 2,000 men around him and Jonathan 1,000, here in verse 15, we read that only 600 people were left at Gilgal with Saul. In verse 17 and 18, we read that the Philistines had sent out raiders into the three regions of Israel. Now, if we had a map here and we would pin the, these places on the map, we would find out, realize that these were the, the, the main regions of Israel, the north, the west, and the southeast. It's a way of saying these Philistine raiders spread throughout the whole territory. They had free access through the land. And in verse 19 and 20 through 22, we find another major problem. The Philistines have not allowed the Israelites to have any blacksmith among them. This was a way to, ma to make the Israelites dependent on the Philistines for all their metal-related services. It was so that the Israelites could not own and fabricate their own weapons, spears or swords. Only Saul and Jonathan had a spear or a sword in all the army of Israel. Friends, uh, especially for us who live here in Texas, who care deeply about our gun rights. You know, imagine that not only you don't, you're not allowed to have a gun, you're not allowed to have a, a sword or a spear, anything to protect yourself in st except sticks or rocks. Flintstone age. Imagine doing battle in that kind of a setting, facing an enemy who had spears and swords and chariots and foot soldiers like the sand of the sea. This means that Israel was both outnumbered in numbers, but also in their weaponry. Now, if we look at their circumstances, their external threats, any of us would understand why the Israelites fell in such a despair. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? But remember how chapter 12 ended. It ended on Samuel assuring God's people on the day of the coronation of King Saul that if they continue to follow the Lord, the Lord will take care of them. I want to remind you some of those promises. Just a few verses prior to, to chapter 13. In chapter 12, verse 21 and 22, Samuel said, And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. And then verse 24 and 25, Samuel closed his speech to them with these words, Only fear the Lord. Not the Philistines, 
Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. At Saul's installation as king, Samuel assured God's people that the Lord had made them his people and will not forsake them. And he will do so because of his great name's sake. And now in chapter 13, it was time to see if Israel and their new king would believe these promises. If they would hold on to the Lord in what he said. If all we looked at was the new crisis of chapter 13, we would understand why anyone would be filled with despair and hopelessness. But if we kept in mind chapter 12, and boy, how, what kind of blessings we get if we read the Bible in context. If we just read the Bible in context all the time, we would get such a different perspective, and that's what we're supposed to see here. If we kept in mind the promises of chapter 12, it might help us to see how they could have responded differently. But somehow, the people of Israel forgot God's promises declared in the previous chapter. Friends, this is one of the reasons why the regular diet of God's word is critical for the health of our soul. That's why we need to be reminded on a regular basis when we gather here weekly of who God is of what he has done, of what he has said, both to keep, but also to warn, both to bless, but also to give us cautions so that whether we go through good times or challenging times, we need to be reminded of who God is, of what he has said to his people. Well, friends, that's why when we gather together, uh, together every Sunday morning, we give a priority in our services to the hearing of God's word. Yes, we, we praise the Lord through song. We seek him in prayer. We confess our sins before the Lord. But the majority of our time together when we're gathered is to hear from the Lord. Why? Because we are plagued with ADD or with spiritually forgetting from week to week what the Lord has said. And sometimes... Even hearing the same message over and over again is good for our souls. Imagine if Israel had, had heard again afresh what Samuel had spoken in chapter 12. It only took about a year perhaps. Between chapter 12 and chapter 13, we don't know exactly, but it was not a long time. Friends, today our nation is facing all sorts of crises. It's easy to get our minds so locked up on what is happening around us. Politically, in the sexual revolution, in the racial tensions and injustice? Are these real things and real problems? Yes, they are. But if, if we look and put our attention on them exclusively and forget who our God is, what is His Word, we can become filled either with fear, with frustration, with antagonism, with anger, with hopelessness. Focusing on our external circumstances has a danger of dimming our vision of who God is and of what He has spoken to us through His Word. That's why if you're, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're so glad you're here with us. If you're looking for churches, I pray that you would look for places that actually want open the Bible and actually read from the Bible. And actually take time to explain the Bible. And to help you understand what the word of God has revealed to us about himself. Because in the midst of crises. What we need most is to hear a word from the Lord of who he is. And what he had promised to do for his people. Times like these should drive us to God's word and to prayer. To encourage one another in this upward direction. As it turns out. Chapter 13 reveals that during this national crisis, Saul failed to believe not only God's promises, but also his warnings. So let's look at point number two, the deeper spiritual crisis. This shows up in verses 
8 through 15. The crisis Saul faced was not merely one of seeing the Philistines coming against Israel. It was not merely a, a crisis coming from the Philistines. It was a crisis coming from his own heart. It turns out that he was not prepared for either of the crises. It's easier to become more aware of external threats and external crises that arise before us. It's more difficult to notice the crisis that looms in our own hearts. It's easier to see the enemy outside of ourselves. It's harder to see the enemy from within ourselves. What is the spiritual crisis that Saul faced within himself that he did not realize? And this national crisis merely exposed the inner enemy and the inner crisis that was brewing in Saul's heart. Let's look at, at three facets of how Saul's spiritual crisis was exposed. And I pray that we would learn from the, from the way Saul was exposed in his spiritual crisis. Three subpoints to this major second point, if you like taking notes. First of all, we see Saul's confidence exposed. Saul's confidence is exposed in the midst of this national crisis. Um, as his own army was facing the, the, the incredible Philistine army, his own army is slowly scattering away. Look at verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Then by his own admission, Saul, in verse 11, said that when he saw that the people were departing from him and that Samuel did not come, he chose to take things in his own hands and initiate the offering to the Lord. Do you see one of the, one of the first repetitions, one of the factors that Saul brings up? What caused his inner turmoil? What caused his inner crisis? His confidence in people. In both verses, we see what triggered Saul to act foolishly. The people around him began leaving him alone. Here's a king who just exposed to us where his confidence was in. It was in people, in his army. Now, if we can look at Saul's logic carefully as a distant observer, as a neutral observer who just examines Saul's situation, we could see how illogical that fear was. His army was already way outnumbered, even if all the people had stayed with him. Nevertheless, he prefers to care more about numbers, about human strength, than about what the Lord told him. In other words, he already had a small army, and his confidence is still in them. This is the fear of man, my friends. The fear of man is when we put too much confidence in man and wha what man can do. We care more about what people think or do than what God says or what God can do. Saul's confidence was in people instead of the Lord. He would rather go against the word of the Lord in order to keep people near him to solve a crisis. Friends, I wonder if we fall in that trap and if we notice it. Feeling like you are losing the admiration or the support of the people. Do you ever feel or do you ever struggle with being too concerned for how people view you or how much support they lend to you or how they relate to you? And you try to keep them at all costs, even if it means going against what the Lord says? Teenagers, students, think of the peer pressure you experience from your friends who you consider the coolest. How you take cues from the people that you treasure more. And as, we, as you grow into adulthood, you, you tend to treasure your parents less and your peers more. And it's less about what your parents say and more about what your, what your peers say. 
It's less about what the Lord says. It's more about how well you're surrounded by those closest to you that you think are really cool. And when we grow into adulthood, perhaps that, those kind of youthful peer pressures subside, go away a little bit, but, but they don't go away entirely because we just change our circle of influence. We, cer- we change the people that we care more about and we, we like to put confidence in, in those people often more than in the Lord himself. Or dear friends, the battle against the fear of man is real for any one of us. I hope that you realize how easy it is for any of us to be more consumed with people and what they do for us or to us, how they relate to us, than the Lord and His Word. This national crisis exposed not only Saul's misplaced confidence and fear of man, but it also exposed something else, another aspect of his crisis. It's Saul's blame-shifting. Saul's blame-shifting is also exposed. He waited for Samuel seven days, and when he sa- saw that Samuel was not coming, he decided he, was, he had a good excuse to take things in his own hand. Often our hearts get exposed when things don't go our way or when things don't go when expected to go. Have you ever noticed how easy it is for us to get irritated and impatient when we have an expectation for a timeline and that timeline does not get fulfilled and we become irritated and impatient and then we begin acting in foolish ways? Here, Saul looks at Samuel's late arrival as excuse for his impatience and for his disobedience. But there's something else that is exposed here in in Saul's blame shifting. He tries to convince us that he did not actually really want to do it. He says, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. He's trying to present himself in the best possible light. As if he really didn't want to offer it, but had to really force himself to do it. He had presented himself as if he had no choice. This shows that in in each of these explanations, Saul is trying actually to blame, one, Samuel for being late. He's trying to blame the people who are scattering away from him. He's trying to blame the Philistines who are possibly attacking him. All of this seems like puts Saul in a corner and in this disobedience, he had no choice. Oh, friends, this is Saul's blame-shifting instinct. His, his heart is now into a different crisis because he goes into this mode. He does not own his wrong. He's excusing it and finding a rationale for why he did it. Actually, he's finding a rationale for why he had no choice but to act the way he did. Oh, friends, this is often one of the clear red flags that someone's repentance is not genuine. When they go in the excuse mode, finding and rationalizing what they have tried to do and trying to show why they actually had no choice but, but to do the disobedient act to do it. Or they present the situation as if they really didn't want to do it, but they, they were out of options. Friends, such rationale proves a heart committed to blame shifting. And blame shifting is, a, is an enemy inside our hearts that is way more powerful and way more dangerous than an entire Philistine army that was facing Saul. Such rationale proves a heart committed to uh, blame shifting. And I wonder and I want to ask you, do you ever find yourself using this tool Do you ever find yourself blame shifting, putting the blame on something else for what you have done, for the way you act? But there's a a third enemy within Saul's heart. Not only is his confidence misplaced and put on people instead of the Lord, not only is his heart focused on blame shifting instead of owning the wrong he has done, a third enemy enemy within Saul's heart is his foolish disobedience. When Saul puts all of these pieces together, the people scattering, the Samuel arriving late, and the Philistine being a threat, he thinks 
he must get God's favor somehow. And this is a, this is a most subtle one. Saul exposes this here on one side. He says, outwardly, I got to get God's favor. I, I got I to gotta do what, what I need to do to make sure that God is on my side helping me deal with this crisis. But in the process of trying to get God's, God, get God's favor, notice how and what Saul does. He goes against the word of the Lord. He's actually trying to manipulate God. He's trying to get God's benefits by going after them in a way that God has forbid him. Saul knows he needs the Lord's favor, and he attempts to get it by doing the very opposite of what the Lord had told him. And listen to God's evaluation of what Saul did. Verse 13, and Samuel said, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Yeah, you may be motivated to get, God, to get God's favor, but your motivation is not sufficient. The way you go after it is significant as well. And this is a dangerous temptation, dear friends, that any of us can fall into also. It's the temptation and the danger of running to God for his favor, but doing so on our terms. Here's the important principle we learn from Saul's beginning decline. Trying to run to God on your terms is foolish. And ultimately, it is disobedience. And nothing can function as an excuse for disobedience. Not even our motivation to run after God's favor is going to be good enough. Years ago, I um, listened to the testimony of Tico Rice. Uh, some of you may know of him, others may not. Tico Rice is, uh, has written the curriculum of Christianity Explored, a wonderful curriculum that uh, goes through the Gospel of Mark in an evangelistic way, uh, a wonderful resource. And Tico Rico gave his testimony of his conversion, and he said a sentence that gripped my heart. And he said, there are two ways people rebel against God. Some do it by running away from God. Others do it by running to God on their own terms. Both accomplish the same effect, rejecting God ultimately. Friends, do you ever find yourself facing similar inner crises, inner enemies, as Saul experienced, tempted to take decisions, that go against what actually God revealed and thinking that the circumstances around you weren't your decisions? Do you find yourself finding excuses for not doing what the Lord calls you to do? And do you think that as long as your motivation is right to run to God, you can ignore His word and you can do things your own way even if it contradicts God's way? I am amazed how today we live in a society and a culture of a growing spiritual Christianity. And I was talking just yesterday with a member in our church about this. A Christianity that is increasingly more spiritual and yet less devoid of the Word of God. It's a spirituality that goes more based on what you feel Jesus is calling. What you feel this God is telling you. What you just feel is appropriate in this circumstance or that circumstance. And you're not actually submitting yourself joyfully to the word of God. We are seeing a Christianity where Christians prefer a churchless Christianity and a wordless Christianity. I want us to be cautious of these enemies. Because the, the enemies that Saul faced in his own heart are enemies that we face as, as well, even if we don't have a Philistine army surrounding us on the outside. Trying to 
think through that as long as I try to just go after God, if I just go on in the way I think best, that He's going to appreciate my motivation. And He's going he's to show up to favor me. Oh, friends, don't fool yourself. Don't think that you can dispense disobedience and the word of God for good motivations. It will not work. It did not work for Saul. I pray that we would be awakened to these inner enemies of the heart. When you and I see God, but we hold on to our own way of doing things, and they're contrary to what God says, we're not seeking the Lord's favor. We're trying to manipulate Him. We want His favor, but on our own terms. And seeking God on our own terms is not an act of faith, but an act of manipulation. This is Saul's story. He's thinking that he wants God's favor for the battle, but he's ignoring what God said through his prophet. And it proves to be plain disobedience and ultimately a much greater threat for him. The dire national crisis exposed in Saul a deeper spiritual crisis in his own heart. And as he proved to place his confidence in people, as he preferred to play the game of blame shifting, and as he chose the path of foolish disobedience to God's word, this brings us to our third and final point. What are the consequences? What are the consequences of the spiritual crisis? Samuel comes to tell Saul that the consequences of the crisis are significant. But before we look at the negative crisis, uh, consequences, let's look, at, let's look at actually what Saul, uh, Samuel tells uh, Saul positively. Instead <coughs> of starting with the negative, Samuel actually says, Listen, Saul, if you had acted in obedience to the word of God, Look at what would have happened to you. Notice what Samuel says in verse 13. Then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now let this sink in. In a day when all Israel's hopes were gone due to the helpless situation that Israel was in, on such a day the Lord wanted to establish Israel's, I mean Saul's kingship forever. Had Saul been obedient? In other words, this national crisis and the spiritual crisis in Saul's own heart were a test for Saul to see if he would follow the Lord wholeheartedly. But he didn't. He chose instead to do the thing that he wanted to do, even if it meant disobeying the Lord. The sad consequence for Saul is that his reign was not going to endure because he did not obey the word of the Lord. Saul's dynasty is set now on a trajectory of decline. It will not last. And the Lord declares that he has elected a new king to replace him. This is a major, major change in the book. So the message for us today is don't run, on God, don't run to God on your terms. It is foolish to do so. It cost Saul his reign. God's severe decree of terminating Saul's royal dynasty shows how critical obedience to God was for the king. God's king was called to represent God's reign over his people. When the king chose not to act faithfully to what God decreed, his reign would become useless and obsolete. He would cease to represent God faithfully in his intentions for his people, and thus the king would forfeit his office and that's exactly what happened. Saul's failure as a king began not when he failed to face the Philistine army. Saul's failure as a king began when he failed to obey the word of the Lord. And the Lord tells us right here at the very beginning that he's already paving the way for another king to come who would follow him wholeheartedly. In the Gospel of John, we find out of the ultimate king who would come. You know, in the story of 1 Samuel, we might think Saul, Sa uh, David is the, is the first, and he is the first fulfillment of the new king that's promised to come. 
because Saul forfeited his office. But we know that David, even he, was just a human king who did not follow the Lord wholeheartedly, consistently. Another king would come out of David's own line, King Jesus. And the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus describes his relationship to the Father as one who would keep the commands of the Father. As one who would obey the word that he has heard from the Father. And the Apostle Paul describes Jesus in the book of Philippians in the following way. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, dear friends, for God's kingdom to be manifested among God's people, the king God set over his people had to fully be devoted to God's commands. And Saul failed at that very quickly. Even David, later in his life, failed at that. But the one who would not fail in following the commands of God entirely, wholeheartedly, is King Jesus. This is what Jesus did through his perfect obedience, even to the point of death, so that we see that God's people might have a king whose dynasty and reign would never end because he was faithful to the Lord entirely. Friends, the absolute obedience of Jesus to the Father is the assurance and the guarantee that his kingdom will never fail. Unlike Saul, who was unfaithful as a king to the Lord and thus lost his rights to a perpetual dynasty, King Jesus was faithful to his Father's instructions fully. And because of Christ's eternal kingdom, which is confirmed through his death and through his resurrection and through his exaltation, we too can be confident that our obedience to the Father is a reflection of our King's obedience to the Father. And even for those who are sinners who have not yet turned to God, even the act of faith, dear friends, even the act of faith is described by the Apostle Paul as the obedience of faith. The act of faith calls for an obedience to turn to the Lord, to surrender to the Lord, to embrace the Lord wholeheartedly. That's why a notion of believing in God and yet not turning to the Lord and embracing His Word and, and following Him wholeheartedly don't make sense. A true faith is a faith that leads our hearts to turn away from our sinful instincts, from our sinful ways, and believe and begin to follow the Lord. Oh, friends, I pray that we would see obedience to the Lord as a fruit, as an outflow of a genuine faith in the Lord. I, wanna, I want you to imagine two flying objects. An airplane and birds. Which one do you think is the strongest. Think in your mind. Don't, don't, don't shout it out loud. Which one is the strongest? Which one has the potential to bring down the other? You might think the airplane clearly is the strongest. The, the birds have no chance against an airplane. And yet, it happened. Do you remember the story of the U.S. Airways flight from LaGuardia Airport in 2009. It took off from LaGuardia. Shortly after takeoff, a flock of birds struck the plane and were sucked into the engines of the plane, causing the plane to lose all their engine power. And it was so dangerous. There was so little power left in that airplane that the pilots figured out there's no way they have enough momentum even to return back to LaGuardia to land normally. And the only option they had was to try to land the plane on the Hudson River. Unable to reach the, any airplane for an emergency landing, the pilots glided the plane 
in the Hudson River of Midtown Manhattan. And all 155 people on board were rescued by nearby boats, with just a few being injured. This water landing of a powerless jetliner became known as the miracle of the Hudson. I might call it the power of the birds to bring down a plane. Yes, birds which initially may think you think of them, what kind of power do they have against those powerful jets of the plane? No chance. And yet, here's these birds bringing down a plane and putting the, putting the lives of 155 passengers at risk. Oh, friends, consider how a flock of birds has the potential to bring down an entire airplane. A flock of birds... They seem so in insignificant and not a big deal. But friends, that's how disobedience is on God's scale. It brings down the plane of our lives. It brings down the plane of Saul's dynasty. It brought down the plane of the human race as Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit in the garden. And friends, it took the Son of God the eternal Son of God, to become obedient even to the point of death in order to undo the curse of our own sin of rebelling against God in disobedience. Friends, the beginning of the ending of Saul's dynasty to teach us the foolishness of trying to run toward God on our own terms. Instead, it should teach us the value of trusting Him enough to cause us to do what He says. Obedience to God's word is not about legalism. Obedience to God's word reveals if you truly trust him enough to obey him, to take him at his word. So consider your ways with the Lord. Do you seek him truly because you trust him or because you want him for what he gives you or because you want to manipulate him? Do you seek him because you want to submit to him or because you want to carry out your plans? Let the story of Saul warn us that it is not sufficient to convince ourselves that we are seeking after God's favor. Ask yourself if you're doing it out of trust in him with a submissive heart to his word or if you're doing it because you just want his goodies on your terms. Let's pray.